Hey, before we dive in, I just want to talk to you about something. You know, I recently hired an intern, which, you know, huge power trip. But I got to tell you, it was a pain in the butt to find this person. I had to talk with a couple different schools. I had to fill out a whole bunch of applications. I had to go through a ton of candidates to find someone who I thought was really great. And by the way, shout out to Kaylee Raglan, who's been absolutely crushing it for me. She's doing an unbelievable job. But, you know, it took a lot of time to find her. And what I should have done is I should have just gone to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and actively invites them to apply for your job. ZipRecruiter makes hiring efficient and effective with features like screening questions to filter candidates and an all-in-one dashboard where you can review and rate your candidates. So you got to do this. You got to go ZipRecruiter.com. And I'm, I'm going to give you a little tip because it's going to make me look good here. Go to www.ZipRecruiter.com slash Zach. That's my name, Z-A-K. Make sure you spell it correctly and check it out. If you need to hire someone, if you're looking to bring someone on board, don't waste time doing the usual recruiting nonsense. Go to ZipRecruiter.com and get the job done there. Okay, I'm done talking. I've talked way too long. Let's go. Here we go. Let's dive in. The Zach Kuhn Show. Ben Vaughn on the podcast, episode 48. Here we go. What can I tell you about Ben? Well, he is the CEO of Warner Chapel Nashville, in case you didn't know that already. And he also is an avid reader of the Nashville Briefing. So if you ask me, I think he's got really great taste in newsletters about the country music industry. Okay, I don't want to give too much of this away because there's a lot of greatness in this episode, a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge, and I want you to take it as it comes. So here we go. Episode 48, Ben Vaughn. Let's dive in. Is that a Waffle House hat? That is. How cool is that? You don't like the Waffle House, right? Nothing like a Waffle House hat. How's it going? Are you are you in Nashville, I'm assuming? Oh, yeah. We're at the house. We're hunkered down. We'll let you in, too. I'm in Vermont. I was in Nashville as of um, two days ago, and I drove from Nashville to Vermont, where my family's spending holidays. So, uh, how long a drive is that? That took me about 16 hours. I got in at about Dang. 5 a.m. because I left too late. Everybody told me to leave early, and and they were right. But I left too late, and I got in at about 5 a.m. So there okay. you go. So I, have a qu- I have a question for you. If you're 16 hours in the vehicle, what's your breakdown of podcast versus music? So this is actually very interesting. And, you know, when I got into the car, like when I started off, I thought, you know, there are so many albums that I want to catch up on that, you know, that I want to listen to. And I only got to like a handful of them. I feel like what I listened to mostly was the Obama book on tape, which I thought was amazing. And that the time flew by listening to that. And then I listened to Howard Stern um, interviews. I listened to two of those, which the time flew by doing that. And then I did listen to a bunch of music, but I think the time in a trek of 16 hours, I think the time might go faster listening to a podcast. It does. And the, and the book, and, and, and I still call it book on tape, but yeah. I'm and the book you. on tape. Anytime it's like a long trip, I, I agree with you. I was just curious, you know, it's like so many choices. So many choices. I did. But I listened to what, what I was catching up on was a lot of the non-country stuff because I feel like I always listen to country stuff. So I was yeah. listening to the new Beach Bunny album, which I thought was awesome. I listened to the new Paul McCartney album, which I thought was actually mm. very cool. Um, and then a c- couple other things. But but wh- what are you listening to? Long car ride? Are you doing podcasts? Are you doing music? What are you listening to? You know, if it's if it's a long, it depends on the length of the, the trip, right? So if it's a longer trip, then yeah, it's it's probably a book mixed with podcast. But that's mainly because music is just like 24-7 of my day, of my regular day. Yeah, right. right. So it's like I don't really have the time to treat myself to, you know, uh, the random podcast I always want to catch up on or the book on tape. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. So for me, it's, it looks probably like that. It's the podcast. I know. And it's, there's something interesting about like three minute clips where each time the song changes, you're like, oh, that was three minutes where like in a podcast or a book, you kind of get lost in it. Like you kind of lose track of yeah. time. 
But with music, there's this constant reminder of how long it's been since the last song totally. that you were listening to. How, by the way, was the Warner Chapel holiday party? I saw that you guys were posting on Instagram. <laughs> there was a big, you know, I my company just had the holiday party. Yeah. And I, I know we did, but I'm curious, what did other people do on their holiday party? Did you have any activities well, planned or? You know, it's interesting, you know, we, uh, the folks that work at Warner Chapel, like we all really like each other. <laughs> we like hanging out and, you know, we have good time in the office. And so we, we try to like do the best we can through this time. Right. And so that includes like trying to throw a fun party. So we came up with um, costume party uh, and a contest, which we got some, some really great entries. We had um, Katie Jell in our office had a, uh, she made a snow globe so she looked, put herself inside a snow globe um yeah. and then the outside said f 2020 on it so that was that was pretty good and you know you would have thought that might have won but then um bethany mako who's one of our a&r assistants literally dyed her hair green put it up in a christmas tree and decorated it um oh my god so yeah I think that extra level of commitment, she, she ended up winning the contest. So we had that. Uh, and that. You had some big yeah. antlers, though. I, I think you were coming in strong with that costume. Yeah, we, we had, you know, we went the Rudolph route. And um, uh, we actually, you couldn't see it in the picture, but, um, you know, I worked with for, with Red Akins for a long, a long right, period of time. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. In my career. And so um, the shirt I had on was it was a shirt of root picture of Rudolph, and then the nose was Rhett's like artist photo where the nose is, and it said um, Rudolph the Rhett Neck Reindeer, right? So that was a it was an old merch piece of his from a long time ago. So I went I went that route, but no, it didn't beat the uh, didn't beat Bethany in the green Christmas tree hair, and she deserved to win. So yeah, she went she maybe committed a little too much for this uh, for this holiday <laughs> Christmas party, but she deserved to win with the dyed hair. So how do you sign Thomas Rhett? Because you signed him when he was in college and he played you his, he had a song and he played Beer with Jesus and, and you signed him when he was still in college. How, how, how do you sign Thomas Rhett? Um, so TR, you know, I, I was worked, like I said, I was worked with his father for a number of years and um, really at the end for Rhett, kind of the end of his artist career, the beginning of his songwriting career for a number of years. And then Thomas, uh, you know, long story short, he actually, I met him for the first time when he was a college student and he was actually thinking about trying to get an internship in the music business as opposed to the artist side. And I was just really struck with him as a person. Like I really thought he was just a really, really great young, young man and was just trying to help him. And so fast forward, I, I saw him play out uh, at a couple of a writer things, one with his dad and and I just thought his his vocal tone and his presence was great. And we, you know, as, as a publisher, one thing we've always done over the years has really been artist development. That's been a really big part of, of being a music publisher at, at the companies that I've had the opportunity to work at, which would be Warner Chapel and then EMI before that. So it was actually at EMI when I worked with Thomas for the first time. And so, um, you know, we're always working on development. So I thought, you know what, I think he's got it. And so we offered him a, a, a deal and it was really a, an opportunity for him to learn more than anything else where he, he was going to go lay floors for the summer. And I said, why don't we do a publishing deal and, and see how it goes. And, and to his credit, um, he, he went faster than just about anybody I've ever seen uh, really in, in the, in the development process, his first demo session, he wrote a song that uh, Jason Aldean recorded. So like, if you think, put putting that in context, I, I, I been, I've done this a long time. I can't think of anyone in their first demo session got a cut by one of the biggest artists in the market. Right. And um, what so, song was that? I'm trying to think what's it's called. A song is called uh, ain't ready to quit. Oh, great song actually. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that is really fun to be part of those early days with TR and, you know, be involved in introducing him to, to record labels. And was that and, because in that first session, he was that good? Or do you think he learned really quickly in a couple well, hours? Did he step man, up to the I, plate? I think, or? A, I think it's a lot of factors. I think there's the, there's absolutely the concept of just natural, natural ability. And I think he's got it in spades. Um, and that's, you know, from, from vocal 
vocals to stage presence to just kind of everything on the on the checklist like he's just really picked things up quickly and and winning in the writing room um that doesn't mean if you don't pick it up quickly you're not gonna be successful it just he he, he did so um he just is kind of one of those folks that's always made the right the right first impressions and has put the work ethic behind it so it's cool to see how successful that that he has become unbelievable so when with an artist like thomas who signed with Warner Chapel this year. And when when new deals are coming up or you're or you're going after big artists, what's the what's the pitch? Like how do you what's the is it that you started with him early on and that was appealing to him? Or is it because there's a lot of other companies in town where you're going after big stars? What's the big pitch for Warner Chapel? Yeah, I, I think it's different for I, I think like the questioner asking has a thousand different answers depending on the, the situation and the person in the deal. Like they're every, every person situation is unique and, and very bespoke is the way I would say it. So it, it's, there's not one quick answer. I, I think at the top end, it's always about trust. So, you know, you, you gotta have some, you gotta have trust between the, the songwriter and, and the publishing company um, and the people that they work with. So but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's got to start. It's got to start there because if you don't have that, then you're not going to be able to. You know, if you think about the the day in day in and day out like interactions with songwriters, it's all centered around trust, right? So your people are showing you their songs, where they're very vulnerable. They're providing trust with their scheduling, like the calendar, like the way they spend their time. Um, they're providing trust with, you know, strategy that, that you're trying to put together to kind of help build their career. So, you know, there's just, I think like the key hallmark thing that runs across every deal and every opportunity, and if that's from the baby deal when a writer is starting out and it's just about belief and nothing more than belief, right? There's just a belief in that person all the way up to the end of the spectrum of maybe you're assigning a very successful artist or songwriter that wants to maybe be at a different company or different place it's trust man that that's that's where it starts now from there it's a lot of other things that you got to build on top of that is it easier to build that trust earlier in the career like you had a shot to build it super early on with thomas or is it harder if an artist is already established yeah. and then a, yeah and then you come in to try I, to build it i think it's i think it's easier i think it can happen any at any point but um probably a little easier when you're early days in um so, but we've worked, but we've also worked with folks that, you know, maybe they just wanted a different change of scenery. Maybe they wanted a different kind of a global company with a global network um, with maybe different types of collections, different types of like opportunities among genres, right. To move in and out of different, different genres. Like totally. there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that a writer would, would go to one publishing company over, over another one. Um, and, you know, with ours, we really try to provide a lot of options, you know, for folks. But um, as far as the people that work there, and I love the folks that we get to work with on a day in, day out basis. They're just great folks, good attitude, good hearts, you know, so. What's the craziest thing? When I had, I had Del Bryan on this podcast and he talked about how his parents, Budlow and Felice, would invite artists over to his house for dinner and they would make dinner and pitch them songs over to dinner. And they, they say, he said that was the most effective way to get songs cut over yeah. dinner. Do you, I mean, will you bring artists over to your house for, I know now you're in a more senior role, but any crazy, like what's the craziest thing you've done to get a song cut? Oh man, I don't even know. Go down, I don't know, go down that road, but I don't know if we'll go, we may not come over for dinner cause I can't cook that well, but um, <laughs> we would go to the Waffle House. Like you were talking about my hat or maybe the Cracker Barrel uh, and let them, let them cook for us. That's the place to bring writers. Is that true? The Waffle House is the place to bring them. Actually, I've had a lot of luck at Cracker Barrel. We, for some reason, it's crazy. Um, a lot of people we've worked with over the years. We, for some reason, met at the Cracker Barrel or worked out the worked out the deal there. Okay, Cracker Barrel. That's the tip. If you want to, uh, if you want to make a, you want to get well, songs cut, Cracker right, Barrel. Zach, I wanted to, before we jump more into my stuff. I, I did want to ask you a question because, like, we don't know each other. And, you know, the Nashville briefing is now like required reading <laughs> every day. So, like, how did you do that in such a short time frame? 
Oh man. I'm, well, I want to you know, know your story. Like how, how did this happen? I mean, that's, that's, that's impressive. Like you're, you're like, you're like, you're there every day. I'm like, where's my briefing and what's going on? You know, that, that's far too kind. Well, I moved to town. Um, and I, well, when I, when I first moved to town, I started that maybe about a year ago and I started putting that email together together and I sent it to my brother and a friend of mine. Cause I wanted people who would give me feedback where I wouldn't take it too personally. I knew I could trust them. From there, I sent it to about 10 friends in Nashville. I said, give me feedback on this. You know, tell me, you know, what, what, what do you think? Where, where can this go? At a certain point after about a month, they started forwarding it to their friends. Their friends started forwarding it. Eventually, I just, I, I grew a pretty great uh, mailing list from it. And then, you know, I started hosting events during the quarantine, um, live streaming. We were live streaming with the head of music at TikTok, head of Twitch. People were signing up for the briefing through that, signing up through, um, through watching the webinars and then through a bunch of other kind of growth tactics. I've now got a pretty massive mailing list, comes out three times a week. And, um, and it's been it's been fun. And I get to talk to people I'm grossly underqualified to talk to, like uh, like yourself right here. That's not true, man. I just, I just really respect the hustle, man. So when did that, when did you start? When did that, when you're sending your friends and family, how long ago was that? I had the idea for it at the last ACMs. I was in Vegas and it was, I was in Nashville, like not that long. And a friend of mine was like, we're going to, a group of us are going to the ACMs. You should come to the ACMs with us. And I said, I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds fun. I went to Vegas. And for whatever reason, I had this idea while in Vegas at the ACMs, all sharing a hotel room. And a couple of my friends thought I was crazy. They were like, you'll never pull that off. There's no way you'll commit to that. They were like, be careful, with, like not to start because you're probably not going to commit and it's going to be embarrassing. And I said, no, guys, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start this thing sent it out there and then I probably sent it to just my brother and another friend for about a month. And then I sent it to about 10 other friends for like a month after that. And then after that, I kind of felt confident that it was <laughs> so The idea enough. started, what, maybe a year and a half ago, maybe? About, about a year and a half ago. And I think I've only been sending it out kind of religiously for about a year. That's crazy, man. Like kudos to you, man. That's, uh, that is, uh, it's a lot of work. I mean, to aggregate that much news and information and stay on top of it and do a podcast, like, because you're kicking it, you're kicking butt, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So you said, and not to dive right back in, but I'm I'm curious about this statement that you said in a Music Business Worldwide article, where you said that in 2018, you predicted that um, more country artists were going to rise with pop sensibilities, kind of pointing to Taylor Swift, and we're going to have, I think, more crossover appeal is maybe what you meant by that. And it's been interesting to see the artists that have kind of done that. I think Sam Hunt might be a good example. Maren Morris might be a good example. But are we still waiting for that moment? Are we in that moment? Now it feels like the Taylor Swift of today maybe is an artist like Luke Combs, maybe. So Did that kind of I, play out the way you thought it would? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great question. And by the way, you are known. I've talked to some friends that have been on your podcast, too, and you're definitely known for doing the research. So nice, <laughs> nice job there. Because when you started, I'm like, oh, Lord, what did I say in 2018? <laughs> but that's not bad. Um, you know what? I think we're in the middle of we're, we're at the beginning stages of what I think is a real trend. So like and why I say that is. Um, I was looking at some urine stuff. It was like billboard, um, like all genre. And I think country had maybe nine songs in that, um, uh, that metric where just a few years ago we had like none <laughs> or one. Right. So like you're seeing, you know, you're seeing crossover like a Dan and Shay or like a Sam Hunt or like Marin uh, artists that are, um, you know, getting played in multiple really multiple formats and so yeah i think i think we're at the beginning of a trend line and hopefully it just continues to to rise and and then it it, it really never goes away because i think what uh different segments of the music business are really learning is when you can combine fan bases everybody wins right as long as long as you get the creative right if you get the creative right ooh, doesn't matter nobody cares but if you get it right yeah, you can really uh, expand the artist horizons. So, yeah, looks like we're uh, looks like that prediction is is in the is in the process of coming true, and and it should continue to rise. Were you are you maybe a little bit surprised that like I feel like the past couple of years there was that '90s trend and we kind of kicked it back to more traditional country. Were you a little bit surprised by that when it was starting to happen? 
We to drill down a little bit more on that. When you say we kicked it back to traditional, you mean so like I feel like the biggest like I I it almost feels like you would maybe have assumed looking at someone like Taylor Swift's path that the next biggest artist or artists would have been more maybe closer up to the pop side of things. And it uh, feels like now you've got artists like Morgan Wallen, Luke Combs, who are starting see, to be the right. But see, that's the beautiful thing about country music and what I, which is really. To me, country music means it is a real song-based format, right? So it's a real song, literal-based format. But then the styles within that are all over the map. So it's a huge tent. It's a really big tent that we all get to play in. And so it, to me, it makes sense, though, that you can have these really big consumption stories with a Luke now and a Morgan. Um, and the other artists are in, are in that as well, you know, but those are maybe the two of the newer artists that are on the scene. Um, alongside of, you know, your Dana Shays and your Gabby Barrett's and your Marin Morris's, right? So like, and they're all, they all identify as country artists. That's a beautiful thing for the Nashville music business right there. Absolutely, yeah. You know, to have, to have all of that um, under the same tent and it's all working and it's, and it's showing growth. I mean, I think, you know, Luke and then my, my strong guess is when Morgan comes out with his, you know, what is it like 20, 30 song record in January? Yeah. It's really going to show a great story for um, the, the music that Nashville, you know, exports to the world. So, you know. Absolutely. So you started working in publishing when you were still in college. You started working at Big Tractor and you were like 20 years old. And, and I remember when I first moved to town, you know, when I was trying to find a job and in hindsight, I look back on at that time and I go, no wonder nobody hired me back then because I didn't know anything. Like it, it, I would have been a horrible hire back then, but you got hired at like 21 and you eventually, I mean, you kind of, you became a pretty senior at the company pretty young, right? Like how did you get pulled into the company when you were still in college? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, look, I think there's all, like there's, it's timing, it's luck, and then it's work ethic layered across those two elements. You know, so like I've kind of always viewed it like, you, you know, you might be smarter than me, but you can't outwork me. So and I, and I still kind of act that way these days um, to sometimes to my detriment. But um, no, back then I was I was actually a, a, I was actually at Warner Chapel, ironically, as an intern. Okay, I started out when I was like an 18 year old intern there and Big Tractor was a, a joint venture company of Warner Chapel and. So they knew me because of my work there. And I had just, you know, I was kind of like the kid that would stay later than anyone else and, you know, come in on the weekends. And I'm giving you kind of some detail because you asked, but coming on the yeah, weekends, please. like like move lyrical files and make copies, like just do everything that is required plus. And so that led the opportunity for the folks that worked at Big Tractor to ask me to work there part-time. That was a small company. We had three songwriters and there was two people, myself and another person when I started and that person left. And so the way I got the opportunity was I had already just been working my ass off for those three writers. And they, they talked to a few other people in town and they, everyone agreed the owner of the company who is Scott Hendricks, you know, who's now right, you know, of course at Warner massive producer and executive at Warner at the time he was at Capitol records. Um, but they all agreed to give me a shot. I mean, they were like, let's give the kid a shot. And so uh, they gave me six months to see if it could work or not. And I was 21 and it, you know, worked out. And I just, I kind of look at it like I really have my head's been down grinding since that time. <laughs> so it's 26 they, years ago. But they know? said to you, they said, six months, we're going to give you six months. And if this isn't working at that point, we're, we're cutting bait. They, they actually said that. No, yeah, basically. Yeah. So I knew that, and you know what, and I was fine with it. I would have done it. I mean, they barely paid me anything and I would, I would have basically done it for free because I just viewed it like it was such a good opportunity to kind of like, you know, work for songwriters and, you know, try to make something happen. And, and that's, and that's really what happened. So I think, I think the big lesson for myself, and then I always tell people in, in the publishing world, like, just make sure you're busting your ass for songwriters. If you were doing that and you're doing it intelligently and you're doing it with the right motives 
uh, things can work out, you know, because people notice, like people notice who who the who the people are that are working and who the people that are not working. <laughs> like, very becomes very apparent. Do you think your friends at the time? Because I imagine you probably went to there were probably a lot of friends that were trying to get gigs. Also, did they look at you and like, holy crap? Ben's got this figured out. Like, I don't, know, they... I don't know if I still have it figured out, <laughs> but you'd have to ask them. Oh my God. So then you became one of the youngest publishers at EMI jumping ahead a little bit um, at 34. Did you feel at that point? Cause I feel like you've kind of always been young, the young person coming into the company. Did you feel at that point at EMI, like was there this great pressure to kind of prove yourself or to deliver, or did you feel like the, you know, like how, what was that like when you became, you became like the youngest publisher head of a major publishing company. Yeah. I mean, right? the way that had kind of worked is it's, it's always, whenever I hear somebody say it that way, I'm like, wait, really Did that happened. But yeah, it, <laughs> it kind of did, I guess. Um, I had, I was a big tractor at what was real small independent. Right. And it had worked really well. And I got a chance to come to EMI as one of their executives in publishing. Um, and it was hard. I will say like, you know, there's pros and cons at, at small companies and big companies, like they both have benefits and negatives. And so, you know, for myself at the time, it was like, I needed to see things from a different platform. And so that's why I moved to the bigger company, EMI at the time. Um, and it was, it was, a I mean, it was, it was great. It was a lot of information and knowledge and great chance to work with a lot of different types of songwriters and, and be involved in artist development and, you know, um, just really a cross section of all things music publishing. And so um, I did that, let's see, I was at EMI for a total of 10 years, okay? And the last th basically three years of that, I got the chance to run the company when I was, like we said, when I was 34, which was crazy. You know, my, my boss was leaving at the time to go uh, to work at a record label and run a record label. And so they gave me the shot, you know, at that age. And, and we, you know, we, we did great. We had a great run and worked with a lot of wonderful writers and helped put a lot of hits into the world, birthed a lot of hits in the world because of that. And um, so, yeah, I don't know, did that answer your question? Did you feel prepared to take over at 34? Were you like, at this point, I've been publishing since you know what? college. I, I, I will tell you, I don't know if prepared is an interesting word. Um, I think in, on the inside, no, <laughs> did I feel prepared? No. Would I let that show on the outside? Of course not. Right. But, I, but I do think, you know, like a lot of things in life, you know, it's all the little things. Like I always tell our team, like this music business is a game of inches. It really is. And so it's the things you're doing every day that are preparing you. So for me, yeah, I had been involved in a lot of discussions around, deals and, and the way deals were constructed. And I really had a, a desire to, I've always had a real desire to learn the, the guts and the, the way things fit together on, on things that I work on. Um, I'm, I'm just always curious about curiosity is, and that's, that's still to this day, I'm so curious about every week in the music business, because it seems like there's a new, new opportunity or new way to do things every week. So like, that's how I've always been wired. And so I guess I was prepared. Maybe I didn't realize it. And then you get into it and you're like, Oh, you know, I think I, I think I can do this. So who, who would you go to? Like, if you're like, I need like leadership advice. Cause I mean, you've been leading people for a minute at that point, but now you're leading people. You've got a staff writer. If you're, if you're like, I'm first time head dog of a big company and who would you go to when you need yeah, advice? I mean, or look, to I've been blessed. Like I've been very blessed to always have a great network of people that were, were an, ahead of me in life, in the business, and that were open. I mean, back to the Warren Chapel days, you know, like a Tim Whipperman, or Michael Knox, Adele Bobo, Scott Hendricks, through EMI, Gary Overton, who was my boss for a number of years, you know. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, you know, people, you know, I've worked around, I've gotten to watch and work around, you know, publishing, you know, legends like, you know, John Platt and, and Marty Bandier and, um, you know, and Cameron Strang. And, and now I get to work with Guy Moot and Carrie and Marshall. So like, I've always kind of been able to have really good relationships with, with, with people in different parts of their lives and their careers and, and, um, you know, have a good 
good working and personal relationship. And I, and I really, and I really value that. Absolutely. So in 2017, you became the president of Warner Chapel. And then in last year, you became the CEO. I'm curious, how did your role change from president to CEO? Oh, let me, yeah. So, it's so crazy, man. That seems like, it seems like a very long time ago. Like, <laughs> Um, I don't think it changed dramatically. I think it was a lot, a lot of it was recognition of the importance of the Nashville market to Warner and to Warner Chapel. So like for me, it maybe meant a few more things that I could, you know, be involved with uh, internally that would also help the Nashville market. So I think it was a good recognition of how the songwriters in the market of, uh, of Nashville, Tennessee can really do anything. Right. And so, you know, they can have country hits. They can also work in the Christian music world. They can also, you know, be sync writers. They can also cross over into pop music. There, there's, a, you know, an urban scene that's bubbling up. There's the opportunity to work more with our, um, our teams in Latin America and the UK. So kind of all of that together um, is how our office is viewed within the Warner Corporation. So has the role changed from president to CEO or is it still more of where it's just more of how do we have our writers become, you know, more successful writers? Man, I think the, I, th I think my job in some ways has been the same job since I was that uh, 21 year old, you know, kid. It's like, you know, wake up and figure out like how to build business around songwriters. And that means how to help those people have careers. So um, I'm, I'm giving you a pretty simplistic answer, but it, that, that's, that's, how it. I it. that's how I view it. And then within that becomes all these other potentials of deals and, and folks to work with. But you got to keep that at the core because if you don't, it just doesn't work out. That's it. Why do writers or, you know, what's the advantage of doing like a joint venture? Like you see this all the time or like Liz Rose has a joint venture with Warner do you guys track down joint ventures? Do people pitch them to you guys? What's sure. the, how, how do those come back? I mean, honestly, they kind of happen. They kind of happen always. I mean, it, it usually is dependent. Well, every time is dependent on who the partner is and what their motivations are. You know, Liz is a great example where she, when we started working with Liz and her, Liz Rose music, she already had a, a company in place and, and Liz was, before she was a world-class songwriter, she was actually a publisher. So right. if you know that part of her story. So like, um, to me, it always- She would babysit Taylor Swift. Is that true? Yeah. Is that I, well, I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't, I don't know about that. I, I doubt that, but uh, you'd have to ask her that. Um, but they had a really wonderful songwriting, you know, relationship that, man, the songs that they wrote and they brought into the, the American songbook, whew, just amazing. But, but it, to me, it was always made sense that she would, you know, have a company and be a publisher. So in her case, when, when she became available to work with, we just jumped at the chance, right? Cause she's a, she's a total legend and, and, and one of the hardest working folks you've ever been around. She's on every board. She's, she's the, one of the first writers to ever be on the NMPA board. That just happened, um, I think last year. So, um, but to answer your question in terms of like partner, like partner deals, like they're, they're all kind of, slightly different but it really depends on the, the makeup of the partner you know and then is it mostly it, like how do those come onto the table do do people pitch warner chapel or do, will you guys go after people and say this would be an amazing joint venture both i mean it's it's been it's been you know again you're talking to somebody who's been done this over 20 years so it's it's been all of the above okay so if you're a songwriter at belmont and you go i want then Vaughn to hear my song. What's, is that even possible anymore? What's the best way to have someone hear your song? Or is the, is the answer that you have to get to someone on my team? Cause it's, I, I get too much music at the moment. You know, it's, it's kind of both. I mean, you know, when I think about, I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. And I don't think you'd care for me to say it, but like, um, you know, I, I was a Belmont student and I, and I really value the college. And um, so I still do some work with the college and, and boards and things like that. But I agreed to go to one of their, they have a, um, it's called the bear house. I think it's like a writer management. That's their, yeah. I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's still around, but. I think when, it uh, is. 
Yeah. When I went a few, uh, you know, probably six or so years ago, I spoke with him and Devin was in that class. And um, I was just really struck by him as a person. Like I didn't know his music, didn't know anything about him, but he, uh, uh, we work with Chris Stapleton and he's a big Chris Stapleton fan. And so, man, he probably asked me 50 questions, you know, that day. And he just really made an impression. And so later, um, I had gotten, some, I found out that he was doing music and I gotten some music and I was like, wow, that's the same guy. And so, but in terms of how to get music to me, it, Wait, it hang on and hang on yeah. one second, not to go. So, so you invite Devin to a Guns N' Roses concert with Chris Stapleton, <laughs> right? Whoa. How'd you know that? That's impressive. <laughs> Look, I've got a great research team who, for, wait, so were, are you a big Guns N' Roses fan? Oh, of course. Yeah. That was a, so Guns N' Roses was in Nashville and Chris was opening, which for me was like, that's just like the best lineup ever. I couldn't believe it was actually happening. I was and at so, that show also, but I was interning. I was still in college and I was spending. Yeah. So, De- yeah, so, De- so yeah, actually I did. I had an extra ticket and I took Dev. So we, we had a good time that night, but, but in terms of, in terms of getting music, I mean, it comes from all places. Uh, does it have to come through our team? Not necessarily, but, but also, I'll many times get music first, then I'll share it with our team, right? Because the way I, the way it works generally is like, we need to have support for a songwriter we're bringing on board. Right. So like if, if, uh, if I'm loving something, but I, but I, but I'm not getting some support from, from our team, then it might not be the right fit at our company. Right. So, um, but yeah, it's not that, honestly, it's not that hard. I feel like we're listening to new music all the time. Now, now the, there's only so many slots to go around, right? So how often, like, I always, like, especially with young writers, like, they always stress about the quality of the demo. I feel like a lot of my friends, I'm curious, does the quality, when you're looking for a songwriter, does the quality of the demo matter at all? Can an iPhone recording with an acoustic guitar and great words make it work? I'll tell you, for me, a quality of demo is not that high up the list. Right. I'm, I'm listening for like, how do you fit? How does someone fit the song together? How does the words, how does the melody, how the ideal, the twist on the, the theme, like those are all the things I'm listening for. Right. Um, now, to be fair, can there be times when the type of song it is needs just the needs the production value? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, um, I think I just contradicted myself right there. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of both. I mean, it's kind of both. You can have a writer because maybe you're signing the writer and the writer is like, you know, they're going to be known for like writing the most banging tracks, up tempo, kick ass, you know, songs possible. Well, that's probably not going to come across on a, you know, um, you mentioned Liz earlier. So like, it's probably not going to sound like the work tape to girl crush. Right. Right. Which we, brilliant just a simple work tape right so it, it may it may lend itself to the the, the type of writer or, or what the goals of that person are um but is it required every time now it's not what's the because i think there's like this uh this idea that you know you're born a great songwriter it's really hard to become you can grow but it's hard to be a great songwriter you know if you're not born a great songwriter maybe that's a myth have you seen any writers that come in when they're young and you go and you just think to yourself, this is never going to work. And then fast forward five years or 10 years, they become amazing. I guess, are you born a great songwriter or can you actually put the time in and become great? Um, Oh, dude, good question. I've always kind of, I lean a little bit more towards, you know, you have to have enough natural ability to then grind and work and build on top of, right? Like, um, I know for myself, when I was a kid trying to like figure out how to write songs and plunk around a guitar, like I don't, I didn't start with those, that grain of a natural, seed of a natural ability enough to turn it into a professional endeavor. Right. So I do think there is, you have to start with a certain foundation of talent to make it work. But then on top of then, then after the, if you have that, then it becomes your work ethic. It becomes the, the people that you work with and the relationships um and you know really the years of a grind because you know you don't really see a lot of national what i call day-to-day songwriters i don't mean artists but day-to-day songwriters that they're overnight success stories 
like that's an exceptionally small list. You know, usually you're talking about, you know, five to 10 years of, of really grinding and working to get to a place where you're successful. That's, that's more normal. When ASCAP wins, or I'm sorry, when Warner wins like ASCAP publisher of the year, and when you guys win amazing awards like that, how is, is that the kind of thing that's amazing because it gives validation to your team or what do those awards mean when like the publishing company wins best publishing company of the year? Sure. I mean, they, it, it definitely is a fun moment for the team because it does validate the hard work, but, but at the end of the day, it really what it truly means is that songwriters are having hits. And, and as you know, like that's what it's all about for that person. So for that individual songwriter, when they can walk up on that ASCAP or BMI stage, that is, that is the ultimate validation of, of what they came to town to chase the dream, right? So, so that just means you have a lot of writers that are having their, their dreams come true, right? And that doesn't mean just the first, you know, someone's first hit. I mean, all of them are miracles, you know, so you can have a writer that's been doing this for, you know, a decade plus, um, like a Rhett, when we talked about Rhett earlier, like a Rhett Akins or a Nicole Galleon or somebody, and they're just... They're thankful and they're grinding and they're working their ass off for each of those moments. So um, that's really what it means. It means writers being successful. Absolutely. When do you hear um, tequila for the first time? Because those were all your writers, right? You know what? I heard that one for the first. Actually, Dan shot me that um, after they wrote it. It was on like, you know, what I call a, a Dan Jordan Nicole work tape, which doesn't sound like, you know, just a vocal and a guitar, right? But, uh, but yeah, it's the first time I heard it. And, and so when they pitched it to you, they, they actually thought it was going to be an outside cut or they thought they were going to, someone else was going to no, cut it? Just, no, no. They were just sharing what they wrote. Oh, okay. And did yeah. you think it was amazing and special? The first oh yeah. Time you it, heard was, it? it was one of those moments when like, you know, uh, you know, I think anybody that tells you like, well, well, well of course we knew it was going to be a huge hit in just about every country in the world, you know, no, no one's going to know that at that moment because there's so much that goes into making those hits, those songs produce those results. But I do remember thinking, man, what a song. Like just the, that's like the perfect blend of, of melody and story and emotion. Like that's, that's that song, right? And then when you wrap it up in the, the production that they put on it, and then of course Shay's just, you know, otherworldly vocal yeah you're gonna get something special so you know in uh in in my world because we worked with you know we're proud to say we were we started with dan and shay from the beginning you know um that's when you know that like we good on the next project like things are good you get that that song was written uh you know and things are gonna gonna work out okay when they turn in tequila that's the uh any any other songs? Any like like any other songs? Like what's the song that you heard and you just knew, even though you just said so impossible to tell? But any other songs that have been turned in? And you, you just go, what? oh I my god! You, I always I always say like I, I'm thinking of a couple. Uh, I, I'll tell you a couple um, off the top of my head. I it for me it's like I remember where I was whenever I heard the song and, and I still remember it right. So I remember like when I heard a work tape on Need You Now for Lady A. You know, back in the day, because we were working with Hillary back in the day, and um, that was amazing. And then I remember, um, did that have the? Actually, um, did that have that? I love that slide guitar lick in it. The uh, it's like a two note slide lick on that song. I don't even. It's like you know, I'd have to go back. Have, I'd have to go back. I mean, they were, you're talking from like the writer, like the the writer room. So I'm not sure. It's funny, how, it's funny how like some parts I feel like I can't separate that part yeah. from the song. I can't imagine the song without that Let's part. Another that. one. Um, this is pretty recent, but um, we work with Riley Green. Oh and, yeah, uh, he shot me. Uh, uh, I wish Grandpa's never died. Um, which, man, I was driving by the Sonic near my house. Actually, is where I was. Remember, and I just pulled over. You <laughs> know, called him. I was just, and that one got me hard. You know. And I don't know if you know the story about that, but Riley actually wrote that song by himself, which, you know, 100% songs aren't, aren't that uh, normal uh, these days. Right, of in course. And then, um, but he uh, he very respectfully asked me a question I've never had a, a writer ask before. He wanted to add his grandfathers as um, as co-writers because the the lessons in the, in that song were passed on from his two grandfathers, and and they're both they're both deceased, so they've 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 gone on and. I said, Riley, I said, 
you know, no one's ever asked me how you can add, you know, someone that's not living to a song, but man, we'll, we'll try, we'll figure it out. And we did. And so we, we, uh, oh my God. they were added, they were added to the song and got, you, know, you got to figure out a lot of metadata and a lot of things to make that happen, but uh, it worked out. So that is so cool. So if I go, if I check the credits on Spotify, his grandfathers are listed on that song. That is so cool. That song I heard, I think I heard Brad Paisley sing it for the first time. Oh, wow. Cause he, I think he was promoting on Instagram and he sang and he said, this is a new song, Riley Green that you have to go check out. And that song is amazing. And I feel like he just thought how many gut wrenching things can I just throw into a song and list off <laughs> one right after the other. <laughs> hey man, that's, that's country songwriting right there. You know, at it's, at it's best. I mean, it just, it just, it just makes you um, feel all the feels. Right. And that, that's one thing that our genre really sets our genre apart. It is like, you know, you really can can feel all the emotions of life. What's the song? Is there a song or a handful of songs or maybe even an artist that you always go back to or that you always listen to to try to remember what great songwriting is or try to get to remember why you got excited about country music in the first place? You know, it's funny. It's a, it's a really interesting question. Because um, I'm, I mean, I, I got to say, I am blessed. I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by great songwriting, you know? Um but I, sometimes I think just because of the volume of music that we all hear and listen to, because I, I, I've always approached this job in publishing as, you know, I need to understand the entire music market in Nashville. So what that means is it means I need to listen to everything. And I need to understand like who wrote all the songs and how that fits together. And so I've always, I've just done that for 20 years. You know, I, I'm just, constantly that's another reason why the national briefing is so great see i gave you a free plug there right because you're, you're putting a lot of information in, in one one spot but um i'm trying to think the the best way to to answer your question like where so so i will have what i call palate cleansers maybe that's the better way yeah to say what's it. the palate right? cleanser yeah yeah, yeah. for me i mean i was such a i was such an interesting kid where i was the kid who had the, the biggest music collection i had the kid i was the kid who had the biggest cd collection um, and so it was so big that we couldn't, we couldn't find a CD cabinet to actually fit it. And so my father, who was a, a really great woodworker, like made, made us, made me my own CD cabinet, which I still have to this day. Holy um, cow. Yeah. And so like, you know, for me, I liked country music was always like the rock. So you're talking like nineties country, late eighties. Um, but I also loved like like I was, I had my whole alternative phase, you know, with like your Pearl Jam, your Nirvana, going back to oh, yeah. a little bit before that, the rock. And then I always loved like crooners, like I was Sinatra, Mel Torme, you know, like I, I really diverse musical taste. So for me, I will usually kind of default back to people I was listening to in high school, right? Which was a, which was a cross section of all, all of that. Um, so, yeah. To me, the one act that always blows my mind and gets me so excited about music, no matter what, is the Rolling Stones. And I was oh, actually watching a documentary nice. last night um, that actually Clarence Spaulding recommended on on a past podcast I did with him. He recommended this documentary, and I was watching it last night. And I like couldn't sleep. I was like, it was they're they are just the coolest. Clarence, man, he's the best. Ben, thanks for taking the time. You know, I'm curious. I, so I heard so many writers over the pandemic, especially I think early on in the pandemic, talk about how they couldn't write a resume or unless they had known a writer or unless they'd been in the room with them in person before the pandemic, they weren't going to get on Zoom with them. As a publisher, do you, do you push writers to write with new people on Zoom during this time? Or do you respect that? Or, or what's it been like balancing yeah. writers on Zoom? What a great question. And I think the the big answer is necessity is the mother of an invention, right? So, you know, as this thing has drug on, I think attitudes have changed on both sides of the spectrum back and forth. Like I'm not writing on zoom. Oh, I am writing on zoom. No, I'm not. Now I am like, it's been a bit of a ping pong um, for some people. Uh, you know, I think we try to respect people for where they're at. You know, I, I don't ever want to push anybody into something that's, truly uncomfortable because that's going to really screw up the creative process in my, in my opinion, but we, where we, we have been able to help some people say, look like this, let's try this and maybe let's try it a few times. Right. Cause maybe the first time is not going to be great. And 
you know, there's writers that now love, love it. Like love writing on zoom. They love the efficiency of it. They love not sitting in traffic. They love what I also kind of noticed. Maybe writers are a bit more lyrical based in, uh, in their approach like it because there's actually more analysis that can happen on the lyrical side. Um, when you're not in the room on top of each other, um, with distractions and you, you may put even more focus actually on the song in some ways. Yeah. So like, I think, I think on some level zoom writing is hard because the interaction and the vibe is different. Other, there also then can be some benefits too. Maybe they're, you're getting more hyper-focused on certain lines to make them the best they can be. I mean, you know, so I think you can take, you can take a positive out of, out of anything. So is it going to stick around post pandemic? Do you think writers will yeah, still be writing on actually, Zoom? Actually, I do. I, I don't think it'll be like their daily every day, right? But I think, you know, uh, you know, I think where I think it can really get a nice pickup is when you need to finish with someone, right? You can be like, hey, man, let's just throw a, a Zoom finish session in at, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock and knock it out in a couple of hours. Where in the past, you either have to, schedule a whole new day, you know, or just more time. So I think that could be a nice help. And then also I think in terms of like riding on the road, there might be some situations where maybe some of those riders are actually zooming in on the road. As opposed to going out on the bus or potentially. I mean again it all depends on it's just like every question in the music business to me, this has been one of the themes of our conversation is it's it's an individualized conversation, right? It depends on who the people are what their makeup is, how they work, how they like to work. So you have to kind of know all of that and, and then you put it together. But that's, but that's one of the things a publisher does. So figures it out, individualizes it, bespoke service to every writer. Ben, thanks yeah. for taking the time, especially during the week of the holiday. Thanks for making it happen. And, um, and really appreciate it. Hope we get the chance to meet in person when it's safe to do so. Yeah, congrats on everything with the briefing too, man. Thank you so much. Back at you. Happy New Year, and um, hope to hope to see you hope to see you next year when whenever we can. Maybe even at a Waffle House. <laughs> Scattered, smothered, and covered. Sounds good. There you have it. Episode forty-eight. Ben Vaughn. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks again to Ben for taking the time to come on the show. So much fun talking. And by the way, if you're kind of on a publisher kick right now, if you want to listen to another great episode with another great publisher, check out our episode with Beth Laird from last season. She is the founder and owner of Creative Nation. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is by Justin Johnson. If you want more content from us, you can subscribe to the Ben Vaughn Red Nashville Briefing at nashvillebriefing.com, or you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye.